So we'll be in chapter one, verse 12. We made it introduction and that first kind of poem. And so here's essentially what we saw last week. Solomon, I believe the author, says, life is monotonous. And he sees monotony in work, in nature, and in history. So I titled this chapter in my own thinking, Life's a Treadmill. It's like when you go to the gym and there's the sweaty dude just hoofing it out on the treadmill, just going, sweating. He's creating his own weather system, just drenching everyone around him. And he's just, he's giving it his all for 25, 30 minutes. And he gets off and guess where he's moved? Nowhere. He's gone. Nowhere. A lot of motion, but no movement. And so that's what Solomon says. And if you stop and you really look at your life, you have to think, that's it, isn't it? Tomorrow morning, you'll get up, you'll shower. At least I hope you shower. You'll brush your teeth. At least your coworkers hope you brushed your teeth, right? You'll go to Dutch Bros. You'll get stuck in a little bit of traffic because it's Grants Pass. There's not a lot of traffic. A little bit of traffic. You'll complain about that. You'll go to your workstation or a cubicle, whatever. You'll do essentially the same thing you did before. You'll take your lunch, probably go to the same spot that you've been many times. You'll come back. You'll leave at five, okay, 4.45 to beat the traffic because it's so bad, right? On the way home, you'll think about going to the gym, but you won't go to the gym. You'll have dinner, you'll watch a little TV and you'll go to bed and you'll repeat that. Life's a gif. Or as my daughter corrected me, dad, it's not a gif, it's called a jif. So I Googled it. Half the people say it's a gift. Half the people say it's a, uh, a gif. It's like potato or potato or tomato or it's one of those. I'm like, I think you're right and I'm right. There's one of these. Life's a gift. Just put it on repeat, right? So that's where we ended. And we pick it up, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So he reintroduces himself. Maybe he's assuming if you read the first 11 verses, you got so depressed, you put the book down and you slept for like a week. So let me reintroduce myself. (laughs) Or he knew this will be read in many, many years in 2019 where the attention span of people will be like nine seconds. So I better just reintroduce myself. They've already forgotten who I am. So he reintroduces himself. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is Solomon. Remember, he's on a quest to try to find out what is life about if you looked at life from a purely secular viewpoint. There's no God. We're just looking under the sun. Scientific method, touch, taste, feel, be able to test it, replicate it. So that's his quest. So now he's applying himself to academics. I want wisdom. It's wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. So he's working his tail off. He's trying to learn. He's applying himself and he becomes very wise, right? There's stories in the Bible about Solomon. Remember the one about the two ladies who shared a bed and they both had little babies about the same age. One of them rolls over on the baby in the night and kills the baby. 
But she wakes up, realizes the baby is dead. So she switched babies with the other woman. In the morning, they have this fight over whose baby is the dead one and whose baby is the live one. So they come to Solomon. Now, how are you gonna figure that out? There's no DNA testing back then. There's no 23andMe, right? There's none of that. So what does Solomon do? He says, take a sword, cut them both in half and give each one half the baby. And so the real mom says what? No, 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 no. Give the baby to the other mom. And the liar said what? Go ahead and do that, good plan. And so by deduction, he figured out who the right mom was. So just wise, right? I'll read for you what Solomon studied. It's 1 Kings chapter four. Listen to this. Verse 29, 1 Kings 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of, I love this, breadth of mind like the sand on a seashore. That's a big, big brain. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, PhD dude, He-Man, we all know how smart He-Man is, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So you just put in your list, whoever it might, whoever it might be, Einstein, um, whoever, whoever your top dudes are. Carl Sagan, he, the Bible's saying he's better than all those dudes, smarter. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. Have you ever sat down and tried to write one proverb? Like just one little wise saying? You know how hard that is? 3,000 of them. His songs were 1,005. Like he beats Bob Dylan. He's got more songs than Bobby. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. Big ones and little ones. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. He studied it all. He's a biologist, he's an entomologist, he's a dendrologist, he's an ornithologist, he's an ichthyologist, you name it, man. He's got more letters after his name than an alphabet, like just chink, he's brilliant. And what's his conclusion after, after his academic study time, what does he say? Number one, verse 13, life is an unhappy business. So he steps back, he looks at this treadmill of life, the rolling the rock up the hill and having it just roll back down in the morning, the monotony of it, just the busy work of life. Have you ever thought about how much of your life is simply busy work? Doing the same thing over and over that you did the, the day before? How much is just simple, busy work? And at the end of the day, this is what he says, terrible. It's an unhappy business. And we can believe, hey, we're smarter. We'll escape that. We'll game the system somehow, right? We'll get out of this monotony thing. We're gonna, we're gonna be smarter than it. We're gonna game it. If you think that, try this test sometime. When you're shopping at Walmart or Bymart or Fred Meyer and you're ready to check out, pick the fastest checkout line. I dare you. Get in that line. And then watch the other lines because guess what will happen? You chose the, short, the, the absolute slowest one. You'll be stuck there with somebody getting a price check on some random object and it'll be there forever and ever. And then as you're sitting there thinking, ah, what happens in your heart? Are you happy? No, you're, it's an unhappy business. You're like, what in the world, man? Why in the, why'd you pick that thing? I don't care if you have a PhD in efficiency, you will choose the slowest line. It's just the way it is. It's an unhappy thing, Right? Like even people that are really smart and really educated, do they sometimes do things that you're like, why did you do that? Why are you doing that? I remember many, many years ago, 
my mom was in the cancer ward at RVMC. So I was taking my five-year-old daughter at the time, Carissa, and we're going to visit her. So we're walking in there. And we, as we walk in, this is the cancer ward. This is the wing where people have cancer, right? You know about cancer. What causes cancer, right? Here we come walking up. There's two nurses out there outside the, the doorway. Guess what they're doing? Smoking. My daughter was just like, dad, dad, they're smoking. I'm like, put your hand down, stop it. But why are they smoking? Don't they know that causes cancer? I'm like, yeah, they know it causes, that's what they're dealing with. Like, just because you're smart doesn't mean you'll do smart things. You're not gonna game the system. It's an unhappy business. So he studies, he's got tons of knowledge. He studies it all. Number one thing he says, yeah, life's an unhappy business. Now, why? He gives you the reason, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. There's something in the very fabric of the universe that's been wrenched, tweaked, and now it doesn't matter what you do, you can't quite tweak it back. No matter how hard you try, it's still crooked. And then what lacks cannot be counted. Isn't there always needs? Aren't there always more needs than we could ever possibly meet in your own family? Isn't there more needs than you could ever possibly meet? People that are broken, drug addiction, whatever it is, there's just, it's more, right? The reason why your taxes go up is what? Because the lacks cannot be counted. There's always some new thing that you can throw money at because the lacks can't be counted, right? From Genesis three on, things got crooked and nothing's been perfect since. Anyone have a perfect garden like the Eden? Not a weed in it, not a single tomato that goes rotten, right? No, you know it's a mixture. The best you can do is maybe 50%, 40%. That's as good as it gets. Everybody, everybody bowl a perfect game every time you go to the bowling alley? 300 every time, man. No, right? Anyone got a perfect car? I do, but it's beside the point. Even mechanics don't have a perfect car. It's just, it's just crooked. It's crooked. Anyone got perfect health? Today you do, but guess what? Tomorrow you won't, right? Right now, you know this. There's cancer cells in every one of our bodies. Just you're hoping that your body is able to get rid of them. Like that, that's what he's saying. It's too crooked. We all feel the curse when we sit for a while, right? It doesn't matter who we elect. It doesn't matter how much money we throw at things. You can't straighten it out. Why? Because people are crooked ultimately. Like the very fabric of the Imago day that we were <coughs> got wrenched and now we're crooked. So that's, that's the problem he sees. And so all this comes down to verse 18 where he says this. When he looks at wisdom and all of his study and everything that he learned, he says this, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. How true is that? Like the more you know, the worse life looks. This is one place where I'd say ignorance is bliss. Four-year-olds got it made right? Ignorance is bliss. When you're four, you don't know the problems of the world. You're like, yes, you just got it made. The worst thing you can imagine happening is your parents forcing you to take a bath. That's it. That's just, that's as much sorrow as you can imagine. But then you start to learn about the world and about brokenness and crookedness and bad people and evil and systems. And you're like, ah, and the more you read and the more news you hear, you're just like, ah, that's what he's saying. Now, if you're new tonight, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're like, man, I thought church was to help you and you're supposed to be happy. This is a bummer. There's one guy who's just stoked. I love this, man. My wife tells me to get off the couch and clean up. I'm gonna say, the preacher said it's all meaningless. I'm not doing it. So yeah, one guy who's happy. <laughs> Amen, someone says. I've been using this for a while, man. Loving Ecclesiastes, my book. He's driving to a point and we'll, we'll circle back on this many times, but the point he's driving to all this is this. You, you learn about things and the more you learn about things, the less you realize you're in control of it. Like this crookedness, I think when you're, when you're whatever, 10, 12, 14, 16, whatever it is, you think I'm gonna straighten everything out in life. And then the older you get, you realize it's way more 
crooked than I could possibly ever straighten out. And, and the older and older you get, you realize I control less and less and less of life. And what that leads to is fear in most people. And you become afraid of everything. So older people, are, they're afraid of everything. Why? Because they've lived a whole bunch more life and they know how crooked the thing is. They've got a whole bunch more vexation from the wisdom they have and a whole bunch more fear from how little they control it. Then you're just afraid. So he's gonna drive to that point. Okay, so that's chapter one. Awesome. Chapter two. So let me introduce chapter two like this. The Bible, if you read it, here's what you come up with. There's an answer in the Bible and it says this. Life with God is good. It's why the beginning of the book says that, right? How many times does chapter one and two say, good, good, good. It's saying this, life with God is good. But it's like this almost. It's like the answer, but, but you don't have the proof to it yet, right? It's like, remember math in high school? You could write down the right answer, but that didn't count, did it? You had to show your right? You had to, this is how I got the right answer. I didn't look over on that really smart girl's paper. You have to show your work. So the Bible says, hey, look, life without God is bad. But then you're like, well, come on, show your work. That's Ecclesiastes. So what Solomon's going to do is he's going to fill that in. I almost think Ecclesiastes should be the first book you read and then read the Bible because it leaves you with all these questions and then the Bible answers them. So this is like, show your work, prove it, Solomon. You're saying life, it's an unhappy business, prove it. And that's what the rest of this chapter does. So chapter two is this, um, actually chapter two and three. Solomon begins to say, here are the six big things that men like. We're gonna evaluate them and see if, those things in of, in of themselves can bring satisfaction to life, can make the unhappy business of life happy, right? And the six big things are, number one, money. Number two, power. Who doesn't like those two things? Religion, friends, work, and pleasure. So he's gonna say, maybe money or maybe power or maybe religion or maybe a lot of good friends or whatever it is, maybe these things can make me happy. So I'm going to evaluate them and see if even without God, I can find happiness in any one of these six things. So that's the rest of this. He just starts to go for it. All right, let's see. Let's see if this makes me happy. So that's what he's going to do. But if you've read the Bible, you already know this. Genesis 1 and 2 says, hey, look at life with God is good. That's what it's saying. The man and the woman were in the garden together, naked and unashamed with one command, be fruitful and multiply. That's good. That sounds really good. But then chapter two, what happens? Or chapter three, what happens? The whole thing gets crooked, right? The man who in chapter Two had been singing over his wife like Pavarotti, like la, 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 la. In chapter three, what's he doing? Blaming her for all his problems. And that's been the way of mankind, men ever since, right? Man, when the dating is there, woo, Pavarotti. But once you get married, what you, you know, you're the reason. It becomes the blame game. The whole thing just gets crooked. And this thing that's supposed to be naked, unashamed and beautiful with no games and the two become one and they're on one team, that whole thing gets just jacked up. And marriage goes from this blessing to, meh, it's a hard labor to make marriage work. Why? Because it just got totally wrenched out of its rightful place, right? So you see that. Chapter three on, life without God is a bummer, right? Blame game. Chapter four, what happens? Two brothers that should be friends, what do they do? One of them kills the other one, right? Chapter six is the flood, Right? And those six chapters are actually the good part of Genesis. From there, it just gets worse and worse. It's saying, listen, life without God is a bummer. So Ecclesiastes is really just living off that, hey, I'm gonna evaluate it in a more modern sense with money and all this other stuff that we have now that they didn't have in Genesis. And let me show you, the same thing is true. Once we went east of Eden, life became an unhappy business. So that's what he's gonna try to prove. So let's go. Chapter two, verse one. I know I won't make it through this chapter, so don't worry. But we did do a bit of this on Sunday. I said in my heart, 
come now, did the academic thing. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. What's the good thing that can make an unhappy business happy? I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. (laughs) Sunday, we looked at this. Let me recap as quick as I can. So he's done an academic thing and he finds that (laughs) vexation, sorrow, striving after the wind. Okay, so step two is I'm going to go for pleasure. So in verse three, he says this, I searched with my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. He parties. And I know there's always people that like, Solomon, come on. He's a Bible dude. Bible dudes don't party. Really? Did he party? Let me just read for you something. Just the amount of food that every day was coming into Solomon's house. Listen to this list. It's once again, 1 Samuel chapter four. 1 Kings chapter four. Solomon's provision, verse 22, for one day, just one day, 30 cores of fine flour. Okay, so um, one core was six bushels and six bushels is a massive amount. He's got 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Someone went through the trouble to try to figure out, okay, how much food would that feed? Conservatively, the bottom number is 15,000 people. The top number is double that. Every single day, Solomon's got 15,000 people coming over to his house for a party, right? So your New Year's Eve shindig was awesome, (laughs) but it's preschool partying. He partied big. And I think it just kept getting bigger. 15,000, 18,000, 20,000, 25,000, 30,000, right? He's busting out his own place. He's like, man, I can't fit everybody into my house anymore. And then at some point, he tires of this. He's just like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of waking up halfway to Mexico in the back of my chariot, missing my wallet with a new tattoo on my head. Tired of it, right? So he just, okay, I'm done with that thing. So now he goes next, which is I'm gonna build stuff. I'm gonna build stuff. Because here's the thing. Partying just never gives you the answer. No one is puking in the toilet and saying, dude, I just found the meaning of life right? There's not a person that's ever done that. Nobody does this. So this is the first thing he does. He's probably a young man at this point because partying is a young thing. Most people at some point figure out, you know what? I didn't find the meaning of life in the bottom of that toilet. Forget it, right? Like you don't see raves at retirement homes, right? 50 year olds aren't raving. They're like, yeah, rave. They're like, yeah, a nap. That's what they want because they figured it out by then. 
So he's young at this point and he just, yeah, I mean, pretty quickly he's like, party ain't, that ain't doing it. I'm out of that thing. So his next thing is, which is what most people do is, okay, I'm gonna achieve something. I'm gonna build it out. So he starts just building, verse four, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools to water the forest of growing trees. And it's huge again, right? He's not planting a crepe myrtle in his front yard. He's like, oh, the Umqua National Forest? Yeah, I planted that, that was mine, yeah. Now, he's not digging a little koi pond. Oh yeah, Lake Tahoe, I had that dug, yeah, it's mine. Right? It's massive, the scale that he goes, huge, right? He'd look at Trump Tower and be like, oh, that's so cute, isn't that nice? That's huge, right? He, he got animals, you read like, he imported, before there were zoos, Solomon had a zoo. He's going to Africa, collecting lions and just the tigers and whatever, because he wants these animals. He, he, it's massive, right? He has 1,400 chariots. That'd be like you or me owning 1,400 Ferraris. Same thing, like huge deal. Money, the money that came into Solomon is, it, you can't even describe the money he gets. So the queen of Sheba comes to visit him. She wants to ask him hard questions. She puts Solomon on jeopardy, essentially. How smart are you, right? He's, what is, what is, right? So he, he answers all of her questions. She's like blown away by him. So she gives him a gift. Guess what the gift is? 9,000 pounds of gold. You know how much 9,000 pounds of gold is worth today? It's worth a lot, let's just say that. It, it's it's a just astronomical amount of money. And Solomon's just like, yeah, I just put it over there with all the other stuff. It's not even a big deal to him. But the money this guy had, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Like he, he did this little adventure and he made, um, it turned out to be 460 talents of gold, which is an astronomical amount. And it was just like, yeah, that wasn't very good. That was one of my failures. Just, uh, it's unbelievable. He is in a level by himself, right? So he does that thing, doesn't like it. So then he goes for a life of ease. I just got servants around me. You know what? I'm tired of building. I'm tired of going for it. I'm trying to doing all that work. I'm trying to studying. You know what? I just want to kick back. So we got all these slaves that came and they did everything for him, right? Those almonds are too hard. Somebody chew them up for me. Like that kind of level of stuff. Like I am not going to work at all. I want people to do everything that's hard for me. And that wasn't enough. Verse, verse eight, many concubines, 300 to be exact. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And it mentions concubines, and here's why. Because a concubine did not have the right of a wife. They were lower level. They were just, they were a plaything. That's what they were. So men will have fantasies. Solomon had realities. Solomon did not have a bucket list where he's like, you know, I'd really like to do this. He did everything he wanted to do, period. There was nothing, there was no one that told him no. And he says to himself, I never told myself no. Whatever I wanted, I did. No limit, nothing. Fascinating. What a study. Here's what's interesting to me. It's very often the things that we love that kill us, isn't it? Not the things that we hate. Money or food or sex or comfort or achievement. Those are things that kill us. Those are things that hurt us, the things that we love. What would your life look like if you're Solomon? No limit, money's not a problem. You're not saying no to yourself. No one's able to say no to you. You're the king, you're the sovereign. What would your life look like? Would it look kind of like verses one through eight? Is that what it looked like? Isn't that the United States? Isn't the United States the grand experiment in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? We're the grand experiment. How's it working out for us? Right, it's the pursuit of happiness, not the guarantee of happiness. How's it working out for us? The number one prescribed drug in America is an antidepressant. Amazing to me. It seems like we fall in the same path and we've come to his same conclusions. So he says this, I became great. Verse nine, and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. 
Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eye desire, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He becomes great. Dignitaries, kings come to visit him just to sit and listen to his wisdom. And they're blown away every time it's better than they thought. And we heard this report, you're even better than the report. So if you look at this just for a minute and you zoom back and you look at what Solomon's trying to do, what's he trying to do in this? I think when you look at this, he's trying to recreate Eden, isn't he? I planted forests and fruit trees and parks. The word for parks, it's this Hebrew word that the entomology becomes the word for paradise, which is the name for the Latin name for Eden. It's a long story, but essentially he's using that same word saying, I was looking to make Eden. He populates with his people, right? Servants and slaves that were born in my house. It's populated with my people. It's a secular Eden with no forbidden fruit. That's what he's trying to create. How fascinating is that? How modern is that? Isn't that what we're trying to do? Give me this secular paradise where no one can tell me I can't do something where nothing is off limits, whatever I wanna do, I have the right to do it. It's so modern. That's Solomon's goal, Solomon's goal. The difference between us is this. We always think there's something more. If I had just a little bit more, I'd be happy. Yeah, right? Our culture even makes fun of this in us. So the Simpsons, great theology, right? There's this conversation, Homer Simpson meets Mr. Burns, you guys know the Simpsons? Mr. Burns is the guy that owns the nuclear. He's the richest dude around. He owns Springfield, the town it's in. So just, he's, he's way off. The, he's, he's the Solomon of the time, right? So Homer Simpson finally missed, meets Mr. Burns and is like, dude, you're the richest man. And this is what Mr. Burns' reply is. Yes, I know, but I'd trade it all for a little bit more. I just love that statement. How true is that? Dude, you're the richest man. Yeah, but I'd trade it all for a little bit more, but you have everything. No, I trade all for a little bit more. That's all of us. The singles think, oh, if I just could be married, then I'd be happy. And some married people are, if I could just be single again, I'd be happy. Right? And the married couple say, oh, we just want kids. If we just had kids, we'd be happy. And the parents are like, you can take my kids. That would make me really happy. <laughs> right? It's always, there's always, ah, oh, if I, ah. Uh. If I could just go to dinner without diapers and screaming and temper tantrums, I'd be happy. Take my kids, please. It's us. The human heart is a mirage seeker. It's constantly looking for a mirage saying, that'll do it, that'll do it, that'll do it, that'll do it, that'll do it. And finally, when you're hooked up to tubes at the end of your life, you realize it was all a mirage. It's an unhappy business. So that's what Solomon is doing. One more point in verse nine. Listen, listen to what Solomon is saying. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Imagine if I said that. I became great and surpassed every other person in Grants Pass. What would you think of me? Dude, you're kind of full of yourself, man. <laughs> you seem a little arrogant right now. Right? He's talking about his dad, King David, better than him. I want you to notice something. I'll read this for you. It's 1 Kings 3. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, asked for wisdom, and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that no one like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also 
what you did not ask, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. It's actually a fulfillment of God's promise, which is amazing to me. You've got a king who's going south and God still keeps his promise to a king who's going south. You know why? Because God keeps his promises. God's promises are not based upon me or how well I am doing or how well I am not doing. What are God's promises based on? His faithfulness. And he says this, if you see the sun come up in the morning, you can bank on the fact that I'll be faithful. It's not based on you, Matt. It's not based on you, Edgewater. It's based on me and my faithfulness. I take such comfort in that because I can have a lot of Solomon in me, a lot of kind of wanderlust and a lot of kind of, uh, if I can only have this, if I only had more of this, I can have a lot of this in me. And sometimes the enemy will come to me and be like, God can't bless you. You're such a moron. And I'll begin to believe that and it will work me. But I go, gotta go back to, wait a second. God's promises aren't based on me. God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And that's who they're based on. Oh, praise God. He keeps his promises to a wayward king. All right, one little section. I'll try to wrap this up very quickly. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness. So now he's actually reflecting back on what he's done, right? Wisdom chapter one, folly and madness is chapter two, verses one through 11. For what can a man do? Who, for what can the man who comes after the king do? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said to my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For the wise is as the fool, and there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Okay, so here's what he says. Number one, I reflected back on whatever this, however many years this was, his academic and his crazy partying life. And he looks back on it and he says, number one, here's what I found. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Pretty common sense right there, right? Like light is better than darkness. Like having your eyes is open is better than having your eyes closed. It seems obvious. Fools make their life worse by continual stupid decisions. They keep bumping into things because they can't figure it out, right? Okay, that's simple. Number two though, the problem he found in this is even though it's better to be wise, we still end up the same. Like no matter how you live, no matter if you are super wise with your health, you're eating quinoa and kale and that's it. You're still gonna die. The end will be the same. There are things that you and I cannot control, period. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how righteous you are. Doesn't matter how wise you are. You can't control these things. Like I think one of the funniest things about the human body is this. There are two parts of your body that never stop growing. Do you know what they are? your nose, and your ears. So in the end, we're all gonna look like a clown. We all look like Ronald McDonald, big ears and big nose. What in the world happened? Well, it's like just a little bit of God's humor. You're not gonna stop that. You're not gonna control that. You can't, right? And after that, you're gonna die. Whether you're wise or whether you're a fool, you'll be painted up like a mime, put in a box and planted in the ground. Wise or fool, same thing. And so Solomon's like, ugh. So his conclusion is, verse 17, I hate life. He's suicidal. Is suicide still like a taboo subject? Has a lot of like baggage with it, right? If, if I do a Q&A long enough, eventually this question will come up. If someone commits suicide, does God send them to hell, 
right? That almost always comes up. And I think the reason why is this, because it's almost like if somebody is suicidal, you wanna use hell as leverage to keep them from committing suicide. Don't commit suicide or else, that was actually, it was used a thousand years ago. Like if you commit suicide, you're going to hell. It's like the leverage to keep them from doing it. But we don't do that with any other sin. Did you told the white lie and got hit by a bus? Hell for you. But if you look at theology, James 2.10, he says, man, you've broken one law, you've broken them all. Whether it's lying or murder, same thing. But it's like suicide has such deep wounded things in people. Like there's no worse way to die, right? So because of that, it's like, well, I'm gonna use this leverage, the fear of hell to keep you from doing that. But the Bible's really honest about suicide. At Moses, Numbers 11, I wanna die. These people are driving me crazy. God, kill me. Job, suicidal because of suffering, loss. Jeremiah, suicidal because things weren't going the way he thought they should go. God, your plan, I don't like it. So kill me. Jesus, Matthew 26, says to his disciples, I am despairing of life itself. Come pray with me. Jesus, because what he knew was in front of him, the suffering of the cross, how brutal that was going to be. But my favorite is Elijah. Right? Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel, fights off 450 prophets of Baal, thinks, man, this is it, right? Praise, rain comes. He's like, revival's coming. Everyone will know now Yahweh is God and Baal is not. A giant revival is coming. He's so excited. He runs off of Mount Carmel all the way down, runs a marathon, beats a chariot. Ahab, the king, beats him to Jezreel. Like, yeah! Does revival spark? No. Instead, a price is put on his head. Whoever kills Elijah is gonna get paid handsomely. So then he turns around, runs from Jezreel all the way down south, another marathon, and then just collapses from exhaustion and says, God, kill me. He's suicidal. And an angel shows up. You know what that angel does? Does he say to Elijah, hey, here I am. I'm bringing good tidings of joy and peace for you. No. Does he say, hey, listen, Elijah, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Nope. Does he say, repent from that bad attitude? Does he say, you know what, Elijah, would you like to talk about this? Tell me how you're really feeling right now. No, guess what he does? Feeds him lunch, puts him to bed. What you need is lunch and a nap. I love that. I think God deals with people a lot better than we do. Because believers, we'll do all the weird stuff, right? Someone's suicidal, we're like, you're lacking faith right now. You need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. You need to count your blessings more. All true things. I don't know if they work with someone who's suicidal, right? The angel comes and just says, bro, what you need is a good meal and some sleep. Later on, God deals with other issues, no doubt. But right now in this moment, you just need a nap and a good lunch, it's more holistic. And then of course it's, hey, you need a buddy, Elisha, and you need a mission, so get out there. But in the moment, it's, you just need sleep. It's holistic and you need food. Sometimes I think the best thing you do for somebody who's feeling really depressed is say, hey, let me feed you a good meal and take a nap. Let me clean your house for you. That might be the best thing you could ever do for them. So interesting, Bible, very different on these taboo subjects, All right? So let me finish by this. Here's a mistake Solomon makes. It's this mistake we're all gonna make. He says this, verse one, come enjoy yourself with pleasure. So then the rest of this section down to verse 11 is trying to arrange people and circumstances to bring him joy and enjoyment, right? I'm gonna get these kind of people around me. I'm gonna build this kind of house. I'm gonna party with these kind of people. I'm gonna do this stuff. I'm gonna arrange people and circumstances to bring me joy. Most of us do that. Most of us believe if we can get the right kind of circumstances and the right kind of people, we will be a very happy person. The unhappy business of life will disappear. We'll have joy. Don't we? Okay, so when you do that, when you arrange things right, the people and the circumstances, and you're not happy, who do you blame then? The people and the circumstances. Well, I had different people and better circumstances. So let me just play this out. 
A man's told men, get married, have kids, do this thing, get a house, all that, you'll be happy. So he gets a wife, gets married, has kids, has the house he wants, has the car he wants, has the boat he wants, and he's got everything he, better than he could have even dreamed at 18. And there's still angst and unhappiness in his life. So who's he gonna blame? Not me, because man, it's better than I even dreamed it would be. So what, where must the problem lie? The people or the circumstances, right? If, if the people were a little different or my circumstances were a little different, then I would be happy. And if you look for blame, guess what you will always find? Someone to blame or something to blame. If my wife was just like that, if she just looked like that, I'd be happy. If she was just better physically with me, I'd be happy. If my job was more satisfying, I'd be happy. If I had a bigger house, I'd be happy. If I had better friends, my friends are such losers. If I just had better friends, I'd be happy. If I achieved more, I'd be happy. If I had a better reputation, I'd be happy. So here's what Solomon comes and says, really? Really? What? Your wife is the problem? Bro, I got a thousand of them. Didn't do it. Oh, you want a bigger house? 13 years, man. 10,000 people working in my house. No. Well, if I achieve more, dude, I achieved everything you could possibly want. He's just saying, that's a broken way of thinking. What Solomon demonstrates is the lie that the enemy says, listen, people and circumstances, if they're right, will bring you happiness. Solomon just, he deconstructs that and says, no way. I had those things beyond measure. And verse 17, I hated life. It's not that way. So what's the answer? Perspective. Part of it is just perspective. Like you have to, what, what he says in verse 15 is so important of chapter one. What's crooked cannot, cannot be made straight. Right? And, and I've used this before. Is earth a jail or a hotel? If you think earth is a hotel, then you're gonna be complaining all the time, right? The bed's lumpy, the bathroom's dirty, the towels weren't folded, whatever it is. But if you think earth is a jail, which I think it actually is, it's imprisoning us until we get released. That would be Romans chapter eight, verse 20. It's imprisoned. Then you're like, man, a bed, praise God. A bathroom. Wait, I have my own bathroom. I thought it was gonna be a communal shower and I was really worried about that because I've heard about jails before, right? It's a whole different perspective. Life is a perspective, okay? So I, I, you can think about life like this. Life is like a can of peaches. Are peaches good? Oh, I love peaches. Have you ever had peaches and cottage cheese? Brilliant. The, just like, you, it's a moment of absolute ecstasy, right? So you got life is a can of peaches. But the only problem is this, you don't have a can opener. So you have this can of peaches that you're like, ah, it should be like this, but you can never get into it. That's life. It should be. It, I, I think, I know what it could be. I know what it should taste like. Ah, uh, so what's the can opener, right? Life has been cursed, crooked, can of peaches. You know, it should be something, Genesis 1 and 2, and it's not. What's the can opener? I'll give you, there's this cycle that Solomon does in this and I'll give it away. It's gratitude to your creator. That's the can opener. He's gonna say that over and over. He has these little moments where he's like, okay, life is about enjoying it and remember it's a gift from your creator. It's gratitude. Remembering, ha, oh, right? We think unhappy people are unthankful. It's totally wrong. Science has shown unthankful people are unhappy. Like there's a one-to-one -one ratio right there. It's not um, un unhappy people are unthankful. It's unthankful people are unhappy. And the more you learn that simple secret, the happier you become. It's why the Bible says this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Be thankful in all things are everything. Why? Because when you are, something happens inside of you that begins to cause you to be different. Romans 1, the entire thing starts out with, hey, the problem with people is this. They stop giving thanks to their creator. And then boom, it cascades down on happiness, misery, crookedness, brokenness. The can opener is thanksgiving to your creator. It's like any emotion. All right, if you get really angry, and then you start to express that anger, what happens to you? Are you like, oh, I feel so good now. I'm in shalom, thank you. No, what, you get up, you get more angry. 
Same with thanksgiving. The more gratitude you begin to show, what happens is it just, it, it, um, expression amplifies the emotion. And you start to see, wow, actually, I'm pretty blessed. And that brings joy. My creator has been good to me. He's been so good to me. He is good and he always wants to do what's good. And he has a good plan for me and good works for me. He's given me good gifts. Oh, it just amplifies this. That's the can opener. It's gratitude, right? If you're unhappy, here's my challenge. This week, every morning, till next Wednesday, write out on a sheet of paper 20 things you're thankful for every morning. Just do that. Shouldn't take you long. Write them out. And the next Wednesday, come grab me. If you would say, you know what? Most miserable week of my life, I'll stand corrected. But I know it won't happen because you'll amplify something in your heart and you'll open up the peaches and you'll be like, oh, I am blessed. I'm blessed. Be thankful to your creator. He is good and he always does what's good. So Jesus this day, Thank you that Ecclesiastes doesn't just give us the answer, but shows us the work. It really hits human unhappiness and misery and problems so exactingly. Forgive us for looking to people and circumstances to bring us joy when you are the source of joy and happiness. They come from you. May we be a people that leave here with the can opener of gratitude to you. May we begin our mornings by the incredible discipline of thanksgiving. Jesus, you've been so good to me. I have a roof over my head. I have warm clothes on my body. I have health. I have eyesight. I can hear I have you, I have brothers and sisters in the faith. I have a secure destination. I have your promises that you will not break no matter if I'm as bad as Solomon. Wow. May we have the can opener of gratitude this week, this month, this year, and may life look different because of gratitude. May we learn from our brother, our guide, Solomon. Forgive us for blaming circumstances or spouses or kids for things that they could never give us. Forgive us of that. And may we turn to you, the source. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.